Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hi, I'm Candace Hoffman, the field coordinator with LAP. I'm excited to share my conversation with one of our great LAP volunteers who also happens to be a very accomplished corporate attorney. We will be talking about his article, No One Is Coming. Please check it out in the show notes after the podcast. And now we'll jump right into the conversation. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So tell me about the altered states of consciousness. So I started drinking in my mid-teens. I quickly learned that it took me places that I couldn't access in my state without drinking. It made me feel comfortable, warm, connected to the people around me, to myself. It would take me temporarily to just accessing almost a part of my spirituality. At the time, I wouldn't have called it that, but that's, it was giving me a glimpse and a fleeting glimpse because it would either, you know, fade away or if I, depending on how much I drank, it might get lost in the intoxication, but there was sort of this, this fleeting glimpse of something bigger than myself. You know, it worked for a long time, which is why I stuck with it once I started. So going from those, those high states of altered consciousness all the way to, at the end, you talked about really feeling like an empty husk. Was that descent to the husk perceptible or imperceptible? Well, I mean, looking back, it was definitely perceptible, and, but gradual. And it took a long time. So I got sober when I was 35. And, you know, my first drink was somewhere around age, I don't know, 15 or 16. So, you know, call it 20 years of drinking just about every day. You know, once I hit age 21, I could buy legally. I drank pretty much every day, except for just a few. One that stands out in my mind is during the bar exam. I was a teetotaler for a couple of days, which was like super hard, but I was pretty, <laughs> pretty driven at the time. To answer your question at the time, it was super imperceptible and gradual, which is why it went from this thing that at one point was just was fun and you know, enticing. And I could stop if I wanted, but I never really wanted to stop to fast forward to in my thirties. And I very much wanted to stop and I couldn't because I was physically addicted at that point. So it was very perceptible and gradual. I didn't realize I was entering a, a place of no return. Although, you know, at a deep level in my consciousness, I, I knew that I was heading down a path that I was going to have to someday really break free from and stop drinking. I just knew that at my core all along, but I always would just play it out like, Oh, you know, next month, it was always just right around the corner when I was going to make a change and cut back or stop. And there was always something else that kept that mirage going. My life kept getting progressively worse, the more and longer I drank. And it was sort of a vicious cycle because the more I sort of had negative repercussions, whether it was with the relationships in my life or just physically not feeling great or saying things that I would regret the next morning or couldn't remember the next morning, usually alcohol would sort of make that feel a little bit better. So it was just this vicious cycle of leading me down a, down a path that wasn't, wasn't really in line with my well-being, but then it was the easiest fix, get some relief from whatever those consequences were, if that makes sense. The bullet and the band-aid. <laughs> exactly. 
So talking about starting your drinking at 16, you were on a fast track for a while. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I was um, sort of got places young growing up, partly because I was homeschooled until I started college. I graduated college at 19 years old, got married pretty young. I got married at 22. I graduated law school at 23 and got a job at a big law firm right after law school. By age 23, I'd checked a lot of boxes and I drank as much as I did for as long as I did because I had these external markers or validation points that were telling me I had things under control when in reality, maybe I didn't or not. Maybe I didn't. And, you know, I would look at the fact that I had a a good job or still married to the same person we had and still have a good marriage. And those were things that like, ah, that, you know, alcoholics, they get fired or they get divorced and all these bad things. And some of that might be true, but you know, it was now come to learn, you can easily be, you know, an alcoholic and have, have those things in one's life. So it's, you know, contributed to the illusion. And, and, you know, I think the reality too, is that I, when I was in rehab, the first time I told my story in a small group setting, one of the counselors said to me, you know, oh, so that, that's, that's why you drink. Cause you were forced to like grow up at an earlier age than you might have wanted to, or should have, or whatnot. I don't know if that's true or not, but it definitely, I think looking back on it, I definitely had a lot of anxiety and insecurity around my age and just and the fact that I was homeschooled and just not fitting in. I just never felt really like part of the group. I remember when I was in college, I was, I was an RA my senior year. My senior year, I was like 18 for most of the year. <laughs> there was freshmen that were older than me. And I was like, I kept my age under such a secret. Like it was a secret I kept. And so that was just like one of many instances in, in my life where totally unrelated to drinking, I learned or just develop the habit of keeping secrets and not being authentic and not being real. And as my drinking progressed, having secrets was something that was just a, was an old rut. And it's an, it's a rut. I have to be careful, even in sobriety that I steer clear of, even if it's just unrelated to drinking of, of not living in dishonesty with myself, with other people. So anyways, you know, getting back to your original question, Candice, I still remember when I had just gotten back from rehab a couple months And I saw my grandmother for the first time and decided to tell her what I was up to. And it was like a complete shock to her because I didn't see her that often. And frankly, I never really had any incidents where she would have had reason to necessarily think that I had a drinking problem. And I I still remember the first thing she said to me is like, how is this possible? You have such a good job, which I think to me is, you know, very indicative of the, the mindset I had. And I think a lot of people have, which is people listening to this might have, which is, hey, I'm successful because I have these accomplishments, or I have this, you know, title, or I have this much money or whatever those metrics are. And those things on their own are, they're true, but it doesn't mean that I wasn't an alcoholic. Yeah. I think those stereotypes and characters that we get from media and just other social influences can be really detrimental in that regard because, um, you know, addiction does not discriminate and it impacts people that look like on the outside, they've got, you know, together. That's so true. And I related a lot to all of the rules that you created around your drinking. I so related to that because I would latch on to really specific details about people who could drink successfully if they were vegan or if they watched Murder, She Wrote or whatever detail that was, instead of fixing everything else, I would focus on that and say, well, I'm going to watch every episode of Murder, She Wrote for sure. That will get me sober. So can you please tell the listeners some about your rules for drinking? 
Yeah, definitely. I, I had I had a lot. And uh, so I have a very all or nothing personality. And if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all the way. I knew that my drinking was problem. The word alcoholic was a hard thing to get my mouth around originally. And I remember the first time I said it in a meeting, I kind of stuttered over it just because it felt so like unnatural saying it out loud in front of other people. But I knew even like well before that, I knew in my late teens, early 20s that I had a, an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And I did a lot of things over the years to try to, to try to keep it in check. It was things like school and then work. Things were guardrails for me because I took those things seriously. And so they were like a self-moderating force in my life as it related to drinking. When I, when I really got into trouble is when I started, you know, I got through school, got through the proving ground of the early years of my professional life to the extent one can kind of make it. Once I kind of made it and had a little bit of experience and felt a little bit of security and felt like comfortable in my profession, that's when those self-imposed guardrails started falling away. And I would relapse into bouts of drinking more and more and more. And so I would do things to try to, you know, some of them were rules. Some of them were just other things I would, I would introduce to my life to fill up the vacuum, frankly, keep me from drinking more than I was, would have otherwise. And so things that I used to fill that void were things like triathlon and running and then I got into yoga. And like, when I, when I talk about stuff like that, like I, did, I wasn't just like content with a 5k jumped right to like a 50 mile race and like would do these extreme things that one, I mentioned my personality. That's just how I tick, but also there were things that would require like a significant amount of time so that I knew that if I was filling my time with those things, I just wouldn't drink quite as much. So yeah, so like all kinds of athletics endeavors, but also like some spiritual things I got interested. I got interested in like meditation, reading a lot of theological literature and exploring my relationship to spirituality and religion. I sort of rethought the politics that I grew up with and changed political parties. I rethought my relationship to food and diet. I rethought my relationship to environmental matters. I, I kind of re-examined all the different facets of my life. Uh, except for drinking. That was like the one constant that no matter what I was doing with, I, you know, I still remember I'd be like meditating three or four glasses of wine in and in the evening nodding off. That was my life. I was, I was doing all these other things, but drinking was always there. And I can tell you that you can easily be, you know, a vegan yogi, meditating, running spiritual seeker, alcoholic. Cause I, I was all those things. And uh, it didn't, it didn't save me from experiencing the, the pain of, of alcoholism that only subsided when I graced to get, to get sober. It's incredible. The, the amount of time and attention and power that alcoholics will put behind everything else, but getting better. And you had a very pivotal breaking point moment. Can you tell us about that? There was a trip I was supposed to go on with my wife that we had planned for a long time. I blacked out the day leading up to that. And so my wife went on an international trip for a couple of weeks without me. When I came to and realized what happened, I spent the next couple of weeks drinking alone in a, in a dark home. It was really, really dark. I had never really been suicidal, but in that time, that was when I started really thinking about ending it all. It just, it was, it was, it was in a really, really dark place. And, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't like a light switch that just happened out of the bloom. There was a long progression of probably a year, year and a half of things just being really dark and bleak because of my drinking. Going back to one of the earlier questions, the descent into alcoholism and sort of whether it was perceptible or not, what came to a head on that international trip that I ended up not going on 
started probably a year, year and a half earlier when I had, I had actually made partner at my law firm. And I mentioned how the different guardrails in my life were moderating forces for me. Once that happened for me, things really just fell apart because I, I had been working towards that for many, many years. And once I actually got there, it was almost like this incredible letdown. I was already drinking enough to classify me as an alcoholic. But when I kind of hit that point, I really just got really, really dark. That's when things really precipitously started to decline. And that's when I knew that I had a problem because up until that point, I would always blame when I you know, would have crazy hangovers or have blackouts or have all, all of the discomfort and pain that, that drinking can, can cause. I would usually blame it on factors that I was medicating from. So like, oh, I have too much stress at work. I'm still dealing with these traumas from childhood or fill in the blank. I'd always have excuses. The calculus in my mind was these bad things happened. I drink to make those things less bad. And oh, a side effect is that something's off, you know, not great, but like that was the way I would explain it. But when I missed a vacation with my wife and something that I really wanted to be at, it wasn't like, oh, this is just indirect way of not wanting to go along with something. Like it was clearly something I wanted to do. And I just missed it because of alcohol. That's when I knew things had crossed a line into like a really dangerous territory when I was missing out the good stuff in life. And for me, that was a wake up that I, that I needed when my wife returned. That's when I asked her to drive me to a treatment facility. And that's how I started the journey. So as painful as that experience was, I'll never forget the gnawing, gnawing emptiness. She left on this trip physically, but I knew that there's a, there's a very good chance that she might've been walking out the door for real too. So yeah, it was a really, really dark time. It turns out that was the, the pain that I needed to catalyze me to, to make a change, to confront the unknown, which is getting sober. That's incredibly powerful. And it sounds like it gave you that paradoxical gift of desperation to take the next step. I think that's really hard for a lot of people who don't have the disease to understand how that could be a gift, but it, it takes that for a lot of people to get into recovery. Talking about when you got into recovery, what happened after your wife drove you to detox? Yeah. So I didn't know the first thing about rehab and I'd gotten a couple names of some different facilities in the Raleigh area that were detox facilities. And I thought those were rehabs. And so we drove to, to one of them and I did a, like a medical detox for I think five or six days. I didn't realize how, what a serious decision that was until I got there. And you realize you can't leave. You can't just walk out. It was, it was, it was definitely scary. And I, I had no idea. I didn't know what to expect. I certainly didn't expect that. And I, I don't say that to like scare anyone because it was looking back, it was the best thing. It was the best decision I made. There were a lot of unknowns. And the reality is, is that was the safest place for me to be. And it would have been really dangerous for me to keep drinking the way I was drinking. But so I went to a detox facility and they made it quite comfortable for me to detox. And by that stage of my drinking, I was, you know, I'd been drinking every day for call it 15 years. So I was at that point, very physically addicted to the point where, you know, I was, my hands were shaking and I was having blurred vision. Like there's just a lot of physical manifestations of alcohol dependence. And I now know just from the learning I've done, it's a really dangerous place to be just physically in terms of the, the withdrawal can be deadly. They were giving me pills. I didn't know what they were, but looking back, you know, they were giving me medication to help that detox process. And the detox facility was fine. I mean, it, it was just a medical detox. We weren't doing substantive work on causes and that sort of thing. It turned out that in the few days leading up to 
my wife's return from her trip and me ultimately going to into detox, I had reached out. Um, I had been in therapy for a long time and I had just started getting to the place of being honest with my therapist, which it's crazy. I was in therapy for years and was never honest, which throwing, just throwing money away essentially. But I was honest with my, with my therapist about my drinking and he had recommended I'd reach out to lab. And so I had actually made an appointment with Nikki Ellington for the week that I ended up going into detox. Um, when I made the appointment, I didn't realize I was going to be in detox the next week, but Nikki actually came to visit me when I was in the detox facility. If I was just on my own and my wife and my family, they don't really have any real experience with alcoholism and detox and rehabs and all that stuff. And so we sort of thought that me going to detox was going to treatment. And so if I was just left to my own our own devices, I would have just finished that five or six days and just gone home, which I don't know how things would have turned out. But when I talked to Nikki, she made a very strong suggestion that I go directly to like an inpatient rehab facility and help me get that lined up. So that when I left the detox facility, I, my wife literally picked me up, drove me to the airport and I got on a plane and I spent a month and a half in treatment that saved my life. I had had some real deep ruts of habits, not only just the habit of drinking, but just the way of thinking and just, I had, you know, really rewire some circuitry and that, that time in detox, it didn't cure me. I'm still not cured, but it gave me a chance to get away from just my routines that were unhealthy routines and start to build some new patterns. That's where I learned how to start going to 12 step meetings. That's kind of when I view myself as joining Alcoholics Anonymous. I started in treatment, going to meetings. And those were honestly, the meetings were the highlight for me of the treatment process. And we did lots of like group therapy and individual therapy and all kinds of stuff. But for me, learning how to to go to 12-step meetings, to listen, to not judge, inch by inch, learning how to participate and actually become part of the group. That was where I started that process, which I continue to this day. And looking back, I'm just so grateful for all the resources that I had that someone like Nikki was willing to come and help me. I just, I, I shudder to think the kindness of so many people is, is really apparent. The other day I was thinking, you know, cause a lot of people, I think when they, if they're not in addiction or recovery, they say, you know, oh, your sobriety date is, you know, whatever date is for me, it's June 10th. Like, oh, well, if it wasn't June 10th, it would have been June 11th or June 15th or what, like June 20th. And for me, I'm not convinced that that's the case. Like I had a moment of clarity. I was so blessed that I had the, the willingness, which didn't come from me. It came from somewhere beyond me, but also some people around me that were able to help me when I had that willingness. And that's just something that I don't take for granted. The other day, it was right around the time of my second anniversary of sobriety. And I was just reflecting and thinking back on, on kind of my journey to that point. And was, I still remember I was out for getting an ice cream cone with my wife and I thanked her for driving me to detox because she could have easily said, no, drive yourself. She could have said a lot of things and been justified. But she didn't. She drove me to detox. And like, had she not, like, I don't know what would have happened. I probably would have kept drinking that day. And I don't know that I would have gone to detox. I don't know that I would have met Nikki. Yeah, my life could be different. I could be dead. Who knows? And so I just, looking back, I'm just grateful for those moments of, of grace that are beyond what I can put my rational mind around. Congratulations on two years. And you're right. It is amazing what brings us to that point. In your article, you discuss this pivotal realization that you had in rehab. Can you tell us about that? It seems like sometimes when these big eureka moments happen, these very ordinary moments that suddenly become imbued with something bigger happening. And this is a very ordinary day in rehab is I distinctly had this thought, like no one's coming to save me. No one's coming. And if, if I, I have all the tools 
and resources that I could want to get sober. And I might never have this opportunity again. Like no one's going to come and do this for me. People are going to help me and people have helped me. And that's how I'm here, but I've got to, I've got to own this myself and not view this as, oh, I got to check this box. And that was a real pivotal moment for me, just realizing that there are people that are going to, that are going to help. And that's the beautiful thing about 12 step community of recovery in my experience is that people are there to help and they want nothing in return. I mean, just want to give back what was freely given to them. And that's, that's a really beautiful thing that it's hard to find, but there's sort of this like non-dualistic side to that. And that, at least in my experience, there's no way that I could do recovery alone. I, you know, if I was just on this journey by myself, I wouldn't be able to stay sober. That's for sure. This weird sort of symbiotic relationship of, for me, I just had to learn. I, I had to just accept that I have to own this and it, it came, it came to me like from a very deep place inside of me, but it wasn't, it was some spoke to me. It wasn't like audible, but it was just like this, like this deep, this in, deep internal knowing that was too true to have originated inside of my two ears. So. Awesome. I wanted to talk to you too, about how the process of recovery has changed your perspective on practicing law. Yeah. Well, such a good question. So I, I when I was in rehab, they had a little bookstore and one of the books they were selling was about a guy who basically hiked the Appalachian trail when his wife passed unexpectedly. I bought it because at that time in rehab, I wasn't sure what I was going home to. My marriage was a question mark. I didn't know where I was going to be coming home and living. I didn't know if I was going to be coming back to the same job I was at before I went to rehab. And I didn't even know that I could practice law without drinking. Because again, going back to what I mentioned earlier for myself, I had this narrative in my head, oh, I can do these hard professional things because I can really let loose. And I have this pressure release valve of drinking. And so I, I just, I never practiced law without drinking. So I, I was, I had this whole narrative built up in my head that there's no way I could do this hard thing without, without drinking. And so anyways, I came back from rehab and just was literally just trying to do the next right thing and just take it one day at a time. It's turned out that I'm still at the same job that I was at the time. Much to my surprise, not only have I been able to keep doing what I was doing, my relationship with my profession has been unchanged in throughout my journey from, from drinking into recovery. And I shouldn't say unchanged. I've, I'm still doing the same role, but my relationship to it has changed in that there's less grasping and there's just more open-handed trust. I enjoy it a lot more. I think I'm still able to be an effective advocate from a professional responsibility perspective, do a really good job for my clients. I don't feel the same level of pressure or insecurity, or I used to have an incredible imposter syndrome. Oh, I don't really deserve to be here. I don't really, sometimes that will pop up. It's much more muted than it used to be. And so it's like night and day. There are still tough days and tough clients and tough situations, but those are more the exception these days than, than the rule. And it probably was always like that, but I was the thing that changed. It's, it's also been a really interesting exercise in 12 steps. They talk about surrender and that being one of the critical first steps of recovery is just learning, let go of the control and the thinking that, you know, what's best. And in my professional life, I was forced to have some surrender because when I came back, I just, I had to really prioritize going to meetings and prioritizing my recovery. And so it was a time of an intense transition for me in so many ways in my life. I couldn't just grind out 80 hour weeks. Like I used to, I just, I couldn't, cause I just, I had other things that I had to do. And as I re-engaged with work with, with a much more posture of surrender 
and just trying to live a spiritual life. Success and really good results just seem to come out of nowhere. And it's been this really amazing journey for me, even just in a few short years. And I'm just, there's no way I would be at the place I am in terms of just some of the success and good things that have happened to me professionally. There's no way that I, I don't see how the trajectory I was on, I would have been in the same place. Like I got sober because I was going to die if I kept drinking the way I was drinking. I've experienced such a depth of a better life and a more easy way of, of living in the world um, professionally as a direct result, I think, of deciding to walk the path of sobriety. I love to hear about the gifts that people get from recovery when you had no intention of trying to get those things. And in making that mental shift, sounds like it's given your job a lot of meaning and fulfillment, and that's awesome. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see what other great things you do as a volunteer. Thanks, Candice. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, yeah, I just want to say if, if anyone's listening out there, the best thing that I ever did was to reach out to LAP and, and get some help. And so I wholeheartedly recommend that. If you're thinking about maybe I should reach out, you probably should reach out. And uh, my experience has been nothing but, nothing but positive. So thank you. Thank you, Candice. Thanks so yeah. much. Thank you for joining us at the Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.